everyone. You are listening to Casual Wednesdays with Doom Rocket, your one-stop shop for comics, talk, and such. I'm Jared Jones. I am MJ Kramer. This week... It's summertime, and instead of going to the park and or the beach like two regular people, MJ and I are sitting in our living room talking about comic book awards ceremonies because we are nerds. Why else are they listening, Jones? You got a good point, MJ. (laughs) got a good point. Of course, MJ and I are discussing all the major categories in the 2021 Eisner Award nominations, who we think might win, who we think got snubbed, all that kind of gossipy bullshit. You know how we do. (laughs) Then we'll dive into our top five most anticipated issues of the week, discuss comic book expectations high and low, and we'll share our spoilery thoughts on Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow number one, out this week from DC. So what does Batman do when he isn't answering the bad signal? Does he work out? Does he read? Does he politely suggest to Catwoman that he, uh... Um, what? <clears throat> uh, all the hard-hitting <laughs> questions will be answered today on Casual Wednesdays. Hello, MJ. Hi, Jared. Happy New Comic Book Day. Happy New Comic Book Day to you. Happy Loki Day as well. Happy Loki Day. Yes, we did just finish watching the latest episode of Loki. Mm-hmm. It always makes me kind of want to have this show turn into a Loki recap show because we're just watching that, then doing the podcast, and it's it's on my mind. It's on my mind. That would make really good Patreon fodder if we had a Patreon. <laughs> But this week, we are talking about the 2021 Eisner Award nominations. They dropped immediately after we finished recording last week's episode, because of course they did. Yeah, yeah. So we're a week behind, but we're getting caught up. We're going to share some of our favorite categories, discuss the nominees, who we think got snubbed, who we think is going to win, that kind of good, happy nonsense. The kind of stuff you've grown accustomed to and or have tolerated (laughs) long since from Casual Wednesdays. But before we get into all that stuff up to and including the recent Bat-Cat scandal on Twitter. Scandal discussion. Yeah. Yeah. However you want to dice that up. We got some lighthouse cleaning before we get started this week. So a lot of you came through and sent us some listener questions in the past week. Thank you very much. MJ and I really enjoyed a lot of them. Keep them coming. If you have questions that you want to ask us or just me or just MJ, comics related or otherwise, hit us up. Info at DoomRocket.com casuals podcast on twitter and throw us a follow over there if you haven't already we'd appreciate it also we need new reviews on apple podcasts so if you haven't done it already why don't you head over there right now whether or not you subscribe to us that's not (laughs) relevant leave a five-star review say something nice and or constructive it helps out the podcast quite a bit can't really get into the whys and hows of it because i never really understood that shit but it does help the podcast yes yeah And I wanted to make sure to reiterate that MJ and I have a surprise for you listeners later this week. What could it be? I don't know what it could possibly be, but check your feeds between now and the end of Friday. (laughs) (laughs) And we might have something in store just for you. For listening to Casual Wednesdays is our way of saying thank you. I think it's a very fun surprise. Mm -hmm. I think it will be enjoyable. Enjoyable for us, enjoyable for listeners, and that's the point, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it? Well, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so MJ, real quick before we get into the Eisners this week, so does Batman go downtown or not? I wanted to save this for the back matter, but then I read Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, and I had thoughts, so that's back matter material. We so both had thoughts, yeah. 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 Gonna express them. But we also have thoughts on this whole, uh, what are we calling this, the Bat Snatch controversy? I guess. <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say. So this happened on, like, Monday evening? And I was actually really sad I missed a lot of it. Because you were at work. We had a very long day at work because um, one of my coworkers who does the count-in with all, all the new books coming in on Mondays with me, he wasn't there. Right. So I had to kind of be the head person doing all the stuff he usually does. And it's the heaviest week of the year so far. Well, it's very, yeah, it's a heavy week. It was just a lot to do. So, so many I wasn't, Venoms. Yes. 
Oh my god. And and they're really thick, so they take up so much more space in the boxes. And there's like four thousand variants. You know, I don't <sighs> think Venom had enough variants, MJ. <laughs> But anyway, I was counting in thousands of copies of Venom, and I missed all of this Twitter hubbub until probably well after it was it was ended. It peaked at a certain point. Yeah, so at I, around eight o'clock p.m. Central. I headed onto Twitter and I just saw like, oh, that's weird. They're talking about oral sex and Batman. Oh, this is a thing. This is this is the subject of the day. So a little context <laughs> for the wise people who don't go on Twitter. An executive or a head writer or some bigwig over at Warner Brothers who's working on the Harley Quinn animated series for HBO Max, which, by the way, is a hard R-rated cartoon. I don't particularly like it, but a lot of folks do. And they were working on the third season. And evidently, because this is where their brains go, the writing team over there wanted to do a scene where Batman would go down on Catwoman. It was just like, a, I think it was like a joke. Yeah, you like, know? A, they like a little a joke. jokey joke, because those are the kind of jokes that they trade in. And the higher up said, no. Because heroes don't do that, and I quote. Now, that was supposed to be an in-production conversation meant only for the people who were in production, right? Wasn't supposed to get leaked out to the press and then circulate amongst Twitter where everyone's a bunch of children until they're not all of a sudden. I don't know. People on Twitter confuse me. They're either perverts or they're completely sanctimonious people. I don't know. Well, it was mentioned in an interview about just them putting together the season. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone decided to, you know, screen grab it and tweet it. And (laughs) oh boy, that was the day. It was Cunnilingus Bedlam MJ. No, 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 no. We got to do alliteration for this. Cunnilingus Catastrophe. Or rather, a cunnilingus contagion because everyone started breaking out all their funny little jokes about Batman and Catwoman and oral sex. And I happened to save a couple of Batcat memes that I thought were pretty funny. How about you? I just have people tweeting hilarious jokes about it. And very funny observations like, why would Catwoman be with a dude that didn't go down on her? Exactly. Selena Kyle deserves better. Why would that be her booty call? Right. Well, regardless of the whys and the hows of it, basically every lady out there had a very nice night, I can presume. Oh, yeah. Because of this conversation. Everyone wanted the opportunity to be better than Batman. (laughs) That was the chance. You had it right there. So, NJ, uh, is this a good use of our time? I think so. I mean, this was Monday night on Twitter was the most fun I've had in, yeah. in weeks. I can't remember the last time I was laughing so hard just being on Twitter I think, or, or enjoying Twitter for that matter. I think my, my likes and retweets reflect my humorousness. Red as a beat you were. It was so funny. I so delightful. So I got a meme right here, MJ, I wanted to share with you really quick because memes are a visual medium. We will have to describe them. I have one right here that features Alf attempting to eat a cat, (laughs) and then the lady who starred on Alf screaming in horror, and Alf has the tag Batman, and the lady has the tag DC, Yeah, because it's shocking to see Batman eat that cat. I thought that was pretty funny, MJ. What do you got there? Mine mine are more just like tweets, so I can read them. I don't have to describe a visual. But someone who is at Boy said, Every vote against Batman not being an obvious master at oral is a vote against Selena Kyle's common sense. How dare you assume she's not looking out for herself? Yep. Except the truth that Batman eats pussy the same way he does everything, with freakish obsessive diligence and talent unreasonable for any normal human to have. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) We did mention this is an explicit podcast, right? Every podcast our rating. Yeah, every podcatcher has that rating, I hope. I got one more meme right here. You know that Anakin Padme meme that's been going around? Where, yes. Yeah, okay, so they replaced it with art from Andy Kubert's Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader. I see this and, one. And so we got one of Batman saying, I know the location of every nerve cluster on a man's body. And Catwoman <laughs> says, and a woman's, right? And Batman's just staring at her. And she responds, 
and a woman's, right? <laughs> it's so good. We got time for one more, MJ. What do you got? I'm going to do two more because they're so good I can't not. All right. So this one is from at Aegeus, and they say, if you're telling me the likely owner of the DC Universe's biggest harness collection is marrying a man who won't go down on her, I question your logic. Mm. And the next one is from at Kath Barbadoro, and they say, I feel like if Prince knew that Batman didn't eat pussy, he wouldn't have done the song. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> You know, there was a time when we didn't have these sort of conversations in comics. I mean, in the town square is what I mean. There wasn't this big of a public forum to have it. Because right. you know there were these conversations going on at a comic book shop. I was a teenager who went to comic book stores. I know the drill. Although I appreciate that having it be on Twitter means that it's more equal in ladies and dudes and everything. Yeah, that's true. Uh, because if it's just at a comic book shop, like, say, like 20 years ago, mm -hmm. that's that's probably not a fun conversation If over you've here. seen Mall Rats, you get the gist. It's uh -huh. like it's like Mall Rats. Well, some, somebody made a joke that they feel like Brody from Mall Rats to having to think about this now. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's Brody asking Stan Lee, is things thing also made out of orange rocks etc <laughs> etc et that's what this is it's a brody conversation it is funny though that dc and warner brothers have kind of become such prudes i mean starting become. with well like when batman damned came out that was right after at&t acquired them and the higher-ups like flipped out that yeah. oh god a shadowy glimpse of batman's dick is visible and have subsequently like it was censored. an impressive glimpse it was, it was just very to be clear shadowy. it was yeah. very shadowy shadowy but pronounced yes yeah but all subsequent printings of that have been censored. Yeah, yeah. But like, remember back in that episode, like Batman Brave and the Bold, when it has like Huntress and Black Canary singing songs about various male superheroes' prowess? Yeah, it's like loaded with double entendre. Yeah. And like, that was a kid show. Yeah, talk about like yeah. Aquaman's little fish, less yeah, outrageous. Right. Plastic Man being putty in our hands. Uh-huh. Just kind of funny. It's okay if it's under the veil of comedy. But when it's like being explicit, like I presume the joke on Harley Quinn was going to be, because if you've watched that show for 10 seconds, subtlety is not its forte. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just want to say, Warner Brothers DC, that is something that heroes do. <laughs> Anyhow. And how. Yeah. So, yep. Great conversation. Comics Twitter. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. Mm -hmm. So, MJ, with all that out of the way, you want to talk about something a little more high-minded? I guess. I guess. I guess. Get the, our minds out of the gutter. Yeah. So we got the 2021 Eisner nominations. The biggest categories. The categories full of names that you will all recognize, you know. Congratulations to all the nominees. Heck yeah. Including Hey Amateur, that yes, anthology Jared. that Shelley Bond put together. Yes, Jared, you're, a, you're an Eisner Award nominee now. Does that count when you're a contributor to an anthology? Because I think the nomination just goes to the editor. I mean, the actual award itself just goes to the editor, yeah. but... I have seen countless people who are part of nominated anthologies put in their Twitter bio afterward, like, Eisner nominee. I'm not doing that. Well, I'm just That's saying, not true. I'm not nominated for no damn Eisner. I mean, you kind of are because you contributed to something that was, so you're part of it. You know what I mean? I'm like one of 200 people, maybe. I forget how many creators were on that I'm, thing. I'm just saying... If I'm an Eisner nominee, then Paul Pope... Oh, I guess he already is. I'm just saying there's a precedent for it. If I'm an Eisner nominee, then Gene Ha... It, I guess he already is. Yeah. I'm, these are all bad examples, Shelley. You stack the deck in Hey Amateur. <laughs> it's nothing but ringers, that, that anthology. Well, I was told when Challengers won its Eisner that I was part of it. That's so I, different. I consider myself a sort of an Eisner winner for the spirit 
spirit of retailing award. Challengers has like four employees on a good week, you know, so it's pretty easy to spread it around. You know, Pat and Dow could probably share the Eisner. Everyone could bring it to their house and have it on the shelf for oh, a little bit, and they like can exchange. Like a sisterhood of the traveling pants thing going on. Kind of like no, uh, you don't wear an Eisner. It's it's breakable. I wouldn't want to pass that around. Well, anyway, congratulations to all the Hey Amateur fellow creators. And all nominees on this list. That's and even right. the ones we don't mention. That's Congrats. right. All right. Well, MJ, let's break the Eisners down into digestible factoids for our listeners mm-hmm. who aren't too familiar with the Eisner celebration and what it means, all that happy nonsense. So this is how the Eisners break down. All printed works that have been distributed in the United States between January 1st and December 31st in the previous year are eligible for nomination. That's a very hardline spectrum, but it breaks a little. They when, fudge it a tiny yeah. bit, because we were looking at some of these, like the best new series. Some of them debuted at the very end of 2019. That's just going to happen. But like, I, you know, you can say that it's because the majority of them came out in 2020. If you only nominated ongoings or limited series that were contained within January 1st and December 31st, it'd be a very short list. One of the works that we felt got snubbed was Seeds, the graphic novel. Yeah, because it got jammed out at the very last minute in 2020. Yeah, like December 20th or something. Yeah. So we're thinking that maybe it's more likely to see it on next year's nominee list. It's possible, but it's weird because, and this is true for the Oscars too, whenever a big time project gets released towards award season, that's the one that gets remembered the most because it's the freshest in everyone's yeah, memory. Yeah. Where's the seeds? Also, this year's judges, a smattering of names I'm not familiar with at all. Mm-hmm. We have Marco Devanza, who's the executive director of Comics Pro. Shelley Fouché, a member of the Comic-Con Board of Directors. Pamela Jackson, a library faculty member of California State University for 18 years. And a popular culture librarian and comic arts curator in special collections and university archives at San Diego State University. That sounds like a great job. Yeah. Keith and Jones, founder and owner of Kid Comics, an independent publisher based in San Diego. Alonzo Nunez, co-founder, executive director, and lead instructor of San Diego's Little Fish Comic Book Studio, a nonprofit comic art studio and advocacy group. And Jim Thompson, independent comic scholar, frequent contributor to the Comics Art Conferences and Comic-Con and WonderCon, and a member of the Society of Cinema and Media Studies Comic Studies Scholarly Interest Group. What a mouthful, all of those jobs. Yes. I guess that's how you get to be an Eisner judge, is mm-hmm. just having like 20 words in your title. Yeah. yeah I'm Jared Jones, the incontrovertible, incredibly handsome co-host of world-renowned and extra-special hearing podcast for ears about <laughs> comics, comma, casual Wednesdays. Am I up? I'm going to type this out. I'm going to type this out. I'll put that on my business cards for the next Comic-Con run. Yeah. So the judging panel, which changes each year, consists of five or six people representing various aspects of the comics industry, usually included are a comics creator, a critic reviewer, a graphic novel librarian, a comics retailer, a scholar, and a member of the Comic-Con organizing committee. And the judges are selected by a special awards committee within Comic-Con International. It's like the Illuminati, but for comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the committee is open to input from a variety of sources, which means a lot of people can submit their works to Comic-Con International every year. And that's basically the only people who get nominated are from publishers or outlets that have the wherewithal to self-promote. Which is why you will never find Casual Wednesdays on an Eisner list. Yeah, that's why. Well, that's because why. I would have to submit, uh-huh. and I don't, it's a pain <laughs> in the ass, I don't want to do it. But once the nominees have been chosen, voting opens on the online ballot slot at EisnerVote.com. Now, you got to be a creator or work in the industry in some capacity in order to vote. Same with retailers. Retailers are eligible to vote as well. That's right. So with that all out of the way, MJ, big year for Image. 
Image Comics led the pack with 17 nominations. Fantagraphics beat Image with 19, but that's unfair because Fantagraphics also reprints a lot of older stuff. That's true. They have a lot of the graphic albums. Yeah, yeah, the archival stuff. Mm -hmm. Leading for Image was Department of Truth. Pretty cool. That was the big winner. And that gobbled up nominations for Best Continuing Series, Best New Series, Best Writer, Best Letterer. But let's get into the nitty-gritty of the nominations, MJ. Usually on the podcast, we would do who we think will win, who we think should win, but that takes up a lot of time, and I don't got the time. So what we're going to do is read off the nominees. We can talk about who got snubbed really mm-hmm. quick, and then maybe we can toss out a who we think will win kind of thing. Yeah. The should is a little presumptuous on our parts because we are hardly judges of anything, let alone the Eisners. I would agree on that. Yeah. All right. So let's begin. Starting at the top with Best Continuing Series, MJ, will you kindly read the nominations, please? Yes. So first we've got Bitterroot by David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green from Image. Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto from Marvel. The Department of Truth by James Tynan IV and Martin Simmons from Image. Gideon Falls by Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino from Image. Stillwater by Chip Zdarsky and Ramon K. Perez from Image and Skybound. Usagi Ujimbo by Stan Sakai and IDW. Now, while I know Usagi Ujimbo is a great top-notch book it's always on this list it is often often nominated hmm. stan sakai is a big fave of the eisner's Amy. wait did i just say that stan sakai is a fan of it i, I meant that they're a fan of him whatever yeah <laughs> you know? we got snubs here mj wrote something sersha underscore ronin underscore saying underscore women dot gif so going back to the describing memes over a podcast, you guys probably know that gif of a clip of Saoirse Ronan from Little Women saying women and like gesturing broadly. There's no lady creators on this list. Right. I, I really find that upsetting. Yes, it is upsetting. But we do have a list of snubs really quick. For example. Well, we've got Die. We've got Kaiju Max. We've got Coffin Bound could have been nominated for these. Those are three. Although continuing series for Coffin Bound is a little sketchy because it was eight issues and I'm pretty sure it's done now. I thought it was ongoing. No. I think it's just on a pause between arcs, isn't it? Well, I don't know where they're going to go after the ending of issue eight, okay. if that's the case. Okay. I, I thought I read that it was still ongoing. Do not get me wrong. I think Coffin Brown should be all over this nominees list, but I think it would be better suited as a limited series. But that could be a reason why it didn't get nominated for either, because they didn't know what to categorize it as. Well, that's their problem, isn't it? Mm. Maybe uh, they should hire you to mm. help them figure it Maybe out. Maybe they should hire you, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who do you think would win out of this list that we have provided, snubs notwithstanding? Last year, Bitterroot won, very deserved. I don't know, Chip Zdarsky is also a fave of the nominating board, so True. Daredevil or Stillwater, probably high up there. Ramon Perez, artist for Stillwater, is also a fave of their nominating committees. Department of Truth is a very hot one. As we mentioned, it was one of the highest nominated series it's on here. It's true, but Eisner's always have a tendency to praise things that are out of the popular parlance. You know what I mean? But every once in a while, they'll do like the Oscars do and be like, oh, this one was a big hit. We should probably should probably give it a lot of attention. I see. I see. Well, I'm with you there. Department of Truth takes it or I eat my hat. Moving on to Best Limited Series, we have Barb Alien, Red Planet by Jeff Lemire, Tate Bromble, and Gabriel Hernandez-Walta from Dark Horse. Decorum by Jonathan Hickman and Mike Huddleston from Image. Far Sector by N.K. Jemison and Jamal Campbell, D.C. Strange Adventures by Tom King, Mitch Gerrids, and Evan Dockshaner from D.C. Black Label. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen by Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber from DC, and We Live by Anaki Miranda and Roy Miranda from Aftershock. Good for Aftershock. MJ, we got snubs. We do. So I can't, 
I can't say Saoirse Ronan saying women yeah. dot gif for this one because there is one lady nominated, and it's N.K. Jemison, yeah. and she's phenomenal. And I would like to see Far Sector winning, but that's just me. But yeah. as far as snubs go, where's the dreaming waking hours on here? Worthy question. Where's the autumnal from Vault? Good question. Where's one- Green Lantern season two? God damn it. Wonder Woman, Dead Earth. Norse mythology. Billionaire Island from Ahoy. There is no Ahoy. Billionaire Island is one of the best comics, bar none, that came out last year. Somebody fucked up at the Eisners. But you should tell them, Jared. I, I guess this telling is you them. telling them. Yeah. I wonder how many Eisner judges are actually listening to this. Probably zero. Maybe all of them, Jared. Mm. Maybe they're sitting around a speaker just listening and going, hmm, yes. Well, if that's the case, you guys left out Billionaire Island and the Autumnal. And that's just <laughs> fucking up, guys. I mean, I don't know what you're doing. Moving on. You said Far Sector should win? That's what I think should uh, win. I'm with you. But Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen is a lot of fun. Far Sector was just phenomenal. Sometimes um, it's just an honor to be nominated at all. Yeah. Decorum, also really good and fucking beautiful. It's kind of up its own ass, though. I, I, so what? A little bit. So what? It's all right. Moving on to Best New Series. MJ, nominees, please. We've got Black Widow by Kelly Thompson and Elena Casagrande from Marvel. Crossover by Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw from Image. The Department of Truth by James Tynan IV and Martin Simmons from Image. Philadelphia by Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander from Image. And We Only Find Them When They're Dead by Al Ewing and Simona DeMeo from Boom Studios. Before we get into snubs, a really fun way to say we only find them when they're dead is to pretend that you're Shirley Manson from Garbage. We only find them when they're dead. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Snubs, MJ. What's the most obvious snub from the best new series category? I had a hard time thinking of this one, but Mm -hmm. the main one that I thought of was John Constantine Hellblazer. Yeah, John Constantine. Constant, yes, yes, yes. John Constantine Hellblazer being absent from this entire list Seems like an error as well. There's there's none of the Sandman universe books on here. Like I mentioned, Dreaming Waking Hours didn't get a nom for Best Limited Series. Isn't that just insane to think about considering all the Eisner love the original Sandman run got? Yeah. So MJ, who do you think would win in this category? Like we mentioned before, Department of Truth is pretty hot. I would love to see Black Widow win, considering it's got an all-female creative team listed. I really enjoyed We Find Them When They're Dead, though, also. So I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to decide which should win. I guess my favorite in my heart is Black Widow. All right. All but right. I don't think it's going to win. All right. <laughs> I think of this list, I would like to see Philadelphia take it. That was one of the ones that we looked back. Did that come out in 2020? Yeah. And it actually debuted at the end of 2019. It's true. And it's dynamite, that book. Yes. No, we both love it. Best writer, MJ. Oh, boy. This caused a lot of tumult on Twitter as things on Twitter often do. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting to be on Twitter, isn't yeah. it? We're talking about Twitter a lot this episode, oh aren't we? Oh, God, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not going to read what they did. I'm just going to read their names because all these writers are pretty prolific, and a lot of them have been celebrated many a time, so you know who they are by now. Here we go. We got Ed Brubaker, Matt Fraction, Jonathan Hickman, Jeff Lemire. Is this sounding familiar at all? I mean, the first four nominees on this list, this could be from, Any like, year. 2012, 2015. Yeah. Yeah. James Tynion IV, his first major nomination for Best Writer. Pretty cool. And Chip Zdarsky, who's been here before. But I, I enjoy that for James Tynion's little nomination list, it includes razor blades from his own Tiny Onion Press. That's awesome. Yeah. That means his horror anthology is now technically an Eisner nominee. The fourth issue of that comes out really soon, by it the does. way. They, they started to show the cover, hype it up. Mm-hmm. Covered by Becky Cloonan, by the way. So MJ, snubs, oh my God. Like Saoirse about, Ronan saying women. Yes. Now, I wrote about this at the Hot Press newsletter. Thanks for reading Hot Press, by the way, everybody. I appreciate it. 
Anyway, I mentioned that N.K. Jemisin, Rom V, and Alex DeCampi could all be on this list, mm -hmm. and that could easily replace Brubaker, Fraction, and Hickman. I mean, it doesn't mean that those dudes didn't write great stuff. It's just like, can't we give more attention to, to people who also did cool things that might not be that high of an echelon yet? Not only do these guys got theirs, they're ragingly successful. They got their money. They got their awards. Give them a break. I do think that Edward Baker and Matt Fraction did have exceedingly good years as they far did. as their 2020 output. They did. But what about Al Ewing? What about Grant Morrison? What about Mark Russell or Dan Waters? If you want to do white guys, there's four white guys right there. But that... Marco Tamaki also, if you want to include everybody else. Yeah. There are so many snubs on this list. It is ridiculous. I don't know how they came up with this. I know how they came up with this list, but it's embarrassing. This list is embarrassing. But congratulations to James for making it. Very much so. That's the one keeper I would have kept for this list. And that's my pick for who should win. I agree. I think James James should win. He's done so much for comics this year as far as just like how successful his stuff has been. Batman's selling better than it's ever been. So. And Something is Killing the Children has been selling like the hotcakes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think James should win. I would also like to see Chip win. That would be fun because I love Chip. But, yeah. Best writer, artist, MJ Nominees, please. We've got Junji Ito for Romina and Venus in the Blind Spot from Viz. Pascal Jusseline for Mr. Invisible Local Hero from Magnetic Press. Trunglin Gwen from The Magic Fish, Random House Graphic. Craig Thompson for Ginseng Roots from Uncivilized. Adrian Tomina for The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist from Drawn and Quarterly. Jean Luen Yang for Dragon Hoops from First, Second, Slash McMillan. The Magic Fish deserves to be on this list. So Without a doubt. 100% deserved. I think it's great. Any snubs on this list? MJ? Yes. Where in the fuck is Daniel Warren Johnson? Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe maybe the nominated committee feels his work is too gritty and bloody and gory. Or Wonder Woman Dead Earth was not on the limited series list and should have been. So now we move on to the best penciler and best penciler inker team. We've got Michael Allred. For Bowie, Stardust, Ray Guns, and Moon Age Daydreams Inside Editions. Marco Cicchetto for Daredevil, Marvel. Jorge Corona for Middle West from Image. Bertrand Gatignol. Did I say that right? I'm going to screw this up too. Pistuvi? I think that's right. Yeah. From Magnetic Press. Mitch Garretts and Evan Doc Shaner for Strange Adventures, DC Black Label. And Sanford Green. Back again for Bitter Root mm -hmm. from Image. MJ, what are the snubs? Where's Bilquis Evely? Where's Erica Henderson for Dracula, motherfucker? Yeah. Did they not see Dracula, motherfucker? I don't know. That that baffles me. That's one of the harder to reconcile omissions from this list is Erica Henderson's Dracula, motherfucker. Do these folks not read comics? Yeah. What's going on here? Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson not being recognized for that book blows my mind. Liam Sharp for Green Lantern. Say what you want about the Green Lantern character, but maybe it doesn't meet your echelon of high-mindedness. Whatever. Liam Sharp brought it this year. I do think it's weird that that did not get any recognition whatsoever. Isn't it weird? Yeah. But there's also no Stephanie Hans on this list, no Danny. Jack T. Cole from Tartarus. Where's Steve Pugh for Billionaire Island? Again, The Seeds, David Aha. David Aha. What are we doing, people? I'm hoping we see him on next year's nominees. Happy for everyone on this list. MJ, who do you think would win? Mike Allred might win because he is, again, a fave of the nominating peeps. And Bowie was also a passion project for Michael Allred. Yes. And people like David Bowie. I don't know if you know this. Yeah, I, mean, I think I picked up on that a couple of times. I'm with you. Mike Allred, just because he's my Ginchy favorite. 
What also, a guy. maybe Garrett and Shaner. Although I love the way that they list them. It makes it seem like they're a pencil or an inker team. It's like, yeah. no, they're just, you know, they swapping work separately, spots on a book. And then the pages get swapped around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fine. Moving on to cover artist MJ. Take it away. We've got Jamal Campbell from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Boom Studios, and Far Sector, DC. We've got Simona DeMeo for We Only Find Them When They're Dead, Boom Studios. Mike Huddleston, Decorum, Image. Dave Johnson for Butcher of Paris from Dark Horse. Peach Momoko for Buffy the Vampire Slayer number... Uh, Just say everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, for Peach Momoko, they list specific issues. Then Ramon K. Perez for Stillwater, Image Skybound. Now, this is a controversial category for MJ and I because we have opinions on covers and cover artists, specifically a couple that never get nominated, and it's almost becoming a thing. Where's Jenny Frizen, MJ? That's what I would like to know. Where's Joshua Middleton? I mean, you're not reading them from my notes the way I wrote them, which is Jenny fucking Frizen yes. and Joshua fucking Middleton. But Where a, are they? But MJ, I'm a gentleman. I prefer to remain a gentleman. <laughs> also, what about Julian Totino Tedesco and Adam Hughes? Adam Hughes's covers for Black Widow have been great. He's probably gotten the recognition yes. that he deserves yes. over the many years he's been doing. However, those Black Widows are They're particularly so good. good. They're yes. so good. But Joshua Middleton, I mean, come on. Yeah. And Jenny Frizen. I don't understand why they're not on this list. Dave Johnson only getting nominated for Butcher of Paris seems strange to me because he's done far more than just that one book. Yeah, three of these names are only nominated for one book. I'm sorry, four of them. And Simone DeMeo being nominated as a cover artist for We Only Find Them When They're Dead. Now, I'm sure that the art on the cover is gorgeous. If you get past the gigantic letters that cover up 80% of the cover itself. Well, Simona DeMeo also does the Dead God variants, and there is a lot of art going on on those. So should this category get broken up into two, Best Cover Artist and Best Variant Cover Artist? Would that make more sense? I guess that would be a good way to differentiate, but it does seem like they're nominating people, except for Peach Momoko, who just do the main cover for their book, and that's what they're nominated for, Mm. which I I think is very limiting, because being able to do lots of different kinds of covers for lots of different kinds of books, I mean, it shows your range as a cover artist. Sure does. Anyway, who do you think is going to take it, MJ? I don't know if they want to go for, like, the popular vote. I guess they'll do Peach Momoko. I feel like it's Peach Momoko's year. You can't go a week without seeing something from Peach. Yeah, and those covers of hers, like, sell really, really well. Again, I don't know. All right, fair enough. Moving on to best coloring, we've got Laura Allred for X-Ray Robot and Bowie Stardust Rayguns and Moon Age Daydreams. Jean-Francois Beaulieu for Middle West. Did I say that right? I think so. I'm not French. Gippy for One Story. Marta Gracia for Empire. Empire? <laughs> Haven't said that in a while. X of Swords, Ten of Swords. Hey, you remember last year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Dave Stewart again for Promethe 1313 from Comixology. Black Hammer and Gideon Falls. Spider-Man issues number four and five. Because there was like a year difference between three and four. <laughs> the J.J. Abrams Spider-Man? Yeah. Oh, fuck that. Uh- And Matt Wilson for Undiscovered Country, Firepower, Thor. Matt Wilson is always on this list. Good for Matt. He deserves it. He's one of my favorite colorists. MJ Snubs. Mateus Lopez, who colors Bilquisevely, is so good. Yeah. So good. We'll be talking more about Matt in a minute, I think. And Tamara Bond, villain. How she is not on this list baffles me. I mean, I'm happy for Dave Stewart being nominated for the 40th time. Mm -hmm. Millionth time. The Good for Dave Stewart for his 100th Eisner nomination. Yeah. Anyway, with that said, if I had to pick one, I would give it to Laura Allred because X-Ray Robot is so unsung. 
nobody talks about that book. It's a crime. Her and Mike Allred's work together, it's just this magical alchemy that I can never get enough of. They're doing commissions right now. Like comic cover commissions i've seen these oh mike's been posting on his instagram and they're beautiful he's been doing superman stuff it breaks my heart i'll never be able to afford it he's, he's done a couple endless ones mm-hmm. one is uh endless road and it's some of the endless recreating the abbey road cover oh my god Ridiculous. it's so good so good moving on to best lettering mj take it away just do the names yeah letterers are very prolific by the very nature of their profession well, two of the nominees are only nominated for one thing. I'll read those. So Mike Allred is nominated for Bowie, Stardust Ray Guns, and Moon Age Daydreams. Deron Bennett is nominated for a ton of stuff. Aditya Bidikar is nominated for a ton of stuff. Clayton Cowles is nominated for a ton of stuff. Sansakai nominated for Usagi Yojimbo. And Russ Wooten is nominated for a ton of stuff. We would talk about snubs, but lettering snubs are, it's not a very deep bench. You know what I mean? Hassan Asmaina Elhau. Yeah. Jim Campbell. I think this is a pretty solid list right here. Having Mike Allred seems extraneous. In well, a way. I was. And I love Mike Allred. I want to say that out loud. I, I was going to whine about that a little bit, but I was when I was looking at Mike Allred's Instagram. He mentioned how he was nominated for lettering, and that it was probably because he hand lettered every there page. There you go. That's something. Because usually, I don't necessarily want someone who just lettered one book to be nominated. The same way I wouldn't necessarily want a colorist who only did one book to be nominated because you want to see their range. Just thinking about hand lettering an entire comic gives me arthritis. Yeah, and the layouts in that book were wild, so mm-hmm. he had to get really creative. That is, it's such a beautiful book, by the way, all of you. If you haven't gotten that Bowie graphic novel. Check it out. It's beautiful, oversized hardcover. I love it. I'm giving this one to Aditya Bidikar just because he's my favorite letterer on the planet Earth right now, <laughs> second only to Todd Klein, so... Well, MJ, I know there's no such thing as fan Eisners, but if there were, MJ, I would like to take the opportunity to award a fan Eisner nomination to you as best co-host to any comics podcast there is or ever will be. Well, it's very sweet of you. I guess I would nominate you right back. Wait, shit. We're both on the same list the same year. (laughs) Who's going to (laughs) win? Fuck this. We'll cancel each other out. I hate this. This is the worst timeline, MJ. We're against (laughs) each other. The podcast is over. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to get drunk in my hotel and throw my eyes out a window. <laughs> it's going to get ugly. It's smashing the TV. Anyway, that's our list. Who do you think is going to win this year's Eisner Awards? Let us know. Cash Wits Podcast on Twitter. Info at DoomRocket.com. What are your opinions on this year's Eisners in general? We want to hear from you. Yeah. Who, who do you think got snubbed? Keep sending us things. We like it. Anyway, MJ, I think it's time for the top five. It is. All right, MJ, I feel like this is going to have to be a rapid fire top five because the Eisners went really long. I knew it would. This is going to be a long episode accidentally. So MJ, I want to kick off this week with the return of Milestone Comics. Now the one shot dropped, what was it, last week? No, it was a couple weeks weeks ago. ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That one was fine. Sets the stage for what's to come. This is the brand new, grand new (laughs) debut, Static Season 1, number one. It's here. I can't believe I'm holding Static number one in my hands. This is awesome. I'm going to cry. From Milestone, I think that's still technically an imprint of DC. Doesn't matter. This is written by Vita Ayala, layouts by Criss Cross, finishes and colored by Nicholas Draper Ivy, and letters by Anne World Design. If you, like me, love Milestone growing up, it's back give it a shot. I want this to succeed. I want everyone to buy it. Static Season 1 is out. 
get it. MJ, what's your first pick for this week's top five? My first pick, I, I know I sometimes recommend these big oversized paperbacks, hardcovers. I'm doing it again, but it needs to be recommended. You're incorrigible. This is the Marvel Treasury edition of Captain America's Bicentennial Battles. So this is a reprint of the Marvel Treasury special of 1976 that was Jack Kirby just doing this super awesome Captain America Bicentennial of America thing. And it also includes reprints of these super old Marvel calendars in the back and all these like cool pinups. It's awesome. It's oversized. It's 30 bucks, but it's totally worth it, especially if you want to put a little bit of oomph in your July 4th celebrations. I hope your bookcase has oomph in terms of space because that's a tall book. There's always room for Jack Kirby. Wow. Jared, what's your next pick? My next pick is Superman Red and Blue number four. Talk about a stacked deck, MJ. We got The Return of Mark Wade, writing yet another Superman oh book boy. for DC. Holy shit. Illustrated by Audrey Mock. That's awesome. We've got a story written and illustrated by Francis Manipal. We got a story by Michael Conrad and Coley Hamner. But the one I want to talk about and mention right here is the one written by our pal Rich Dowick and illustrated by our pal Joe Quinones. Joe! What a lovely little story. All these Superman stories in Superman Red and Blue have been really cute and or exciting and or great. It is a spectrum that makes up the entirety of this project. Issue number four is another great example of that. Congratulations to Rich. Congratulations to Joe. And, you know, people like Mark Wade and stuff like yeah. that. What a great issue. Superman Red and Blue is out this week. Check it out. MJ, what's your next pick for this week's top five? Yet another DC comic. Sorry. Nightwing. We have been loving Nightwing since it debuted with Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo as the creative team. This is Nightwing 81 that comes out this week. It's got quite a bombshell on the last page. Uh, hopefully you didn't get spoiled for it because there were spoilers going around. Uh, but like I said, written by Tom Taylor, art by Bruno Redondo, colors by Adriano Lucas, Wes Abbott on letters. There's also a really great variant cover that has Nightwing on a pride flag. Catch up on it if you haven't already started it. Read it. Oh my god, read it. This week's top five, now with extra hyperbole. <laughs> What's your next pick, Jones? My last pick for this week's top five is Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number one. You stole this from me. Well, uh. anyway, this is written by Tom King, illustrated by Bill Cusevoli, colored by Matt Lopez. Clayton Cowles is the letterer. I feel like we're going to talk about this a little further in mm -hmm. the back matter. So I'm going to save all the good stuff for that. Mm -hmm. Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number one, closes out our top five most anticipated issues of the week. Every week we feel the question from one of you. Our listeners hit us up, info at doomrocket.com, Cashwest Podcast on Twitter. This week, Pop via Apple Podcasts killed two birds with one stone mm -hmm. by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and then throwing in a question at the end of their review. How ingenious. Yeah. Have the ingenuity of Pop, is what I'm saying to you, listeners. Anyway, Pop says, thanks for making my workday a little easier. Informative show with great recommendations. Love MJ's giggles. <laughs> <laughs> Quick question. What comic book did you really look forward to reading and left you disappointed? And what book did you have little anticipation for and yet it blew you away? Thanks, Pop. Well, thanks, Pop. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting question. MJ, I've spent a few minutes thinking about this particular issue. Expectations high and low, do they affect the reading of the actual material? Definitely. And it affects, like, when I go see a movie, if I have really high expectations, there's a higher possibility of me disliking it because I'm expecting something that's going to just, 
you know, murder my brain with its right. awesomeness. And it's just, it's just okay. There's that much more of a difference between the expectation <laughs> and the reality. I'm with you. I feel like I tamp my expectations now. When I start feeling like I'm getting hyped on something, I'm like, be careful. Be careful. Mm-hmm. I think 90% of everything that gets made is just fine. 5% of it is shit, and 5% of it is amazing. So with that in mind, you just go in with tamp down expectations, you'll, you'll walk out of it going, eh. I have, I have gotten to the point where I can enjoy just fine. I wish I could join you there. I, I really wish you do. could too, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> but having said all that, what's a comic book that you were really looking forward to and it kind of let you down? The first one that came to mind, because I have a hard time thinking of answers to these sorts of questions. I don't keep running lists in my head. That's okay. But I wish my brain worked that way. Mm-hmm. But the first one that I thought of was the recent restart of Fantastic Four with Dan Slott writing and mm. Sarah Pacelli on art. I was super excited for this because so was the, I. Uh, first Fantastic Four and how long two years oh it was longer than two it was like five or six or something yeah because marvel killed off the well didn't kill off but got rid of the fantastic four at the end of secret wars and then they stopped publishing fantastic four books forever and for two fantastic four fans such as you and i that was hard that was a tough thing to swallow and then they announced this big return and then sarah pacelli's off the book within three issues and the three issues she provided were definitely under par as far as she's concerned as an artist they seemed a little rushed and, and then Dan Slott also didn't bring the didn't bring the cheddar. I mean, Dan Slott isn't really an, a writer that I tend to gravitate towards anyway. I just don't seem to necessarily enjoy his comics. Like, nothing wrong with people who dig him. But they just don't seem to be for me. To that end, Dan Slott will appear again during this conversation <laughs> before it's over. But what about you? Well, as everyone knows, I am a big, big fan of the Vertigo series Preacher, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon are two of my all-time favorite creators. Because of that book, when I discovered that Marvel had purloined both of them from DC to kick off a brand new Punisher storyline, I was over the moon excited. Didn't really care much about the Punisher, still don't. But Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon working together on an uber-violent Marvel title, I was pumped. Expectations were high. And while I love Garth Ennis's more serious stuff with the Punisher that he did for Marvel Max... That stuff was far more broad and cartoony and goofy. Like, the worst impulses that Ennis had for Preacher were all over the place in Punisher. And I don't know if that was, like, an editorial thing. Like, you got to make this kind of funny. Otherwise, it's going to be too grim. But Ennis did the grim Punisher stuff, and it was top flight. It was incredible stuff. So, I don't know. I, I was a little disappointed by it. But the expectations following Preacher were too high. Not even fair. It was just one of those helpful lessons to help me tamp down expectations. Mm -hmm. But let's invert the conversation, MJ. What comic book did we have low expectations for that exceeded them? Now, I had a hard time remembering anything to answer this one as well. Oh, no. If I have super low expectations on something, I kind of more often tend to just not read it. Because I I want to enjoy what I read. I get burnt out too easily on comics. That's fair. But the one thing that I thought of is back in 2016, 2015, 2016, when the last Suicide Squad movie came out, they put a new creative team on the Suicide Squad comic. And it was new Suicide Squad with like issue 20. And it was Tim Seeley and Juan Ferreira. Yeah, I remember that. And I didn't have really high expectations for it, just partially because I'm just not a Suicide Squad person, especially haven't been since the New 52 when they decided to have it be all about Harley Quinn wearing a bustier for some stupid reason. (laughs) But that is a comic where I distinctly remember the, wow, I I really enjoyed this. What about you, Jared? Well, this one is easier for me because, like I said before, my expectations are usually pretty low. So it's easy to jump over that hurdle. Mm -hmm. But Dan Slott, let's bring this guy back around. It's not a bad writer by any metric. I didn't say he was. He's just not for me. 
I know. Yeah. I know. I know what you said, but people tend to misconstrue things, even though we say them quite plainly on this podcast. And I want to make that clear. And with that said, I dropped off his Amazing Spider-Man run pretty early on. But when I found out that Alex Ross was redesigning the spider suit and doing all the new covers, and not only that, but they were changing the whole paradigm of the Spider-Man mythos, Peter Parker would be poor no more, but rather a multi-billionaire on a Stark level. I was like, what? The Alex Ross stuff I was high on. The Parker being a billionaire stuff, I was like, that's not Spider-Man. What are we doing? So initially you were checking it out as a hate read, is what you're saying. Well, I was going to check it out because of the Alex Ross design, and I wanted to see, I think Giuseppe Camincoli was working on the book at the time. That sounds right. I could be wrong. No, I think that's right. It's hard to remember, it's a while ago. But when I ended up reading it, I ended up loving it. I loved it. It brought back the spider buggy. (laughs) Spider-Man was doing like Secret Agent Man stuff with Mockingbird. It was cool stuff. It not only exceeded my expectations, it ended up becoming one of my favorite Spider-Man runs Hmm. of all time. And I know that's a controversial opinion because a lot of people like me originally thought Peter Parker can't be rich, but he was. Didn't last. For Parker, things never do last. For comics, things never really last. That's true. But for the short period of time where Peter Parker was a billionaire and Dan Slott was writing Amazing Spider-Man... That was an all-time high for me. And I'll add another thing right here. My expectations, I tamped them so low to the ground when I heard that this was announced. Brian Bendis was hopping on the Superman line. Not just Superman, the line. Superman, Action Comics. Oh my god, I was like, okay. Don't get your expectations too high, Jones. Don't set yourself up for failure. Now that it's all in the can and I can look back on it, I can honestly say that Brian Bendis' Superman run is one of the all-time best. Wow. It is really damn good. I'm going to reread it again soon. I'm very much looking forward to it. I love everything that's spun out of it. Legion of Superheroes, Event Leviathan, and then Checkmate, which is coming out soon. I'm looking forward to that. The entire Wonder Comics line, including Naomi, all of that was aces. Looking back on it, Brian Bendis' Superman run not only exceeded my expectations, it is now cemented in my heart as one of my favorite Superman runs. That's awesome. That's right. So thank you, Pop. That's a great question. We appreciate the review as well. If you, too, have questions for MJ and I that you'd like us to answer to the best of our abilities, we do tend to ramble. Hit us up, info at doomrocket.com, Cashwitz Podcast on Twitter. All right, MJ, here we are in the back matter. Now you know what that means. I do. That means we're going to flip through something. Sometimes it's a wizard magazine. Sometimes it's a new comic. This week, it is a new comic. <gasps> Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number one. We had to talk about this issue. It's so funny that it's Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. Yeah, there, there's a tangent in the title. Like, it's very odd. I, I keep calling it Superwoman of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's what I keep calling it just by accident. But it's not that. MJ, written by Tom King, art by Bill Cusevoli, colors by Matt Lopez. Letters by Clayton Cowles. That's right. Let's crack this open, shall we? Yes. Let's discuss this really quick because, as I've stated many times on this podcast, Tom King, for me, goes either way. I am really enjoying Batman Catwoman. The last issue did not particularly thrill me, but I've got my opinions on his style. I've got my opinions on the way he approaches superheroes in general, and I feel like he either really gets a character or he's a bad fit for a character. The jury's still out on Kara Zor-El as far as where he's going to take this character, but as far as first impressions go, Tom King's performance on Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, I would say is some of the best he's written for DC. It's not choppy at all. There's not a bunch of tiny captions with like one words in it or even music lyrics. I can't not, stand it when he does music lyrics. It's not That's narrated not writing. by music, yeah. It's not writing. When you just 
lay out a scene for an artist to draw and then just have captions of musical lyrics. That drives me nuts. And he's doing it all over Batman Catwoman, but I digress. In this, there's full text where you get a, a really good idea of the alien world that we're introduced to in this issue. You get a good idea of the culture, you get a good idea of the main character, who's a young girl by the name of Ruthie, and you understand her plight and circumstance fully by the end of this first issue. I think Tom King acquitted himself well. But as a few others have noted, the reason that you understand everything so fully is that this is a riff on another very famous story, like a really obvious riff on True Grit. It is. And if you've ever seen True Grit... Either one of them. Either one. John <laughs> Wayne, Jeff Bridges, doesn't matter. The John Wayne version is better, without a doubt. But Haley Steinfeld is awesome. Yes, Haley Steinfeld's great in the, in the new one. Kate Bishop. Yeah, that's right. If you're familiar at all with True Grit, you're like, oh my God, this is full on True Grit. And it's not even trying to hide it. No, at is all. Is that an homage? I would say yes. I don't know. Using it as a springboard for seven more issues following this... Because we don't know where this is going to go. That's true. We don't know what the rest is going to be. Using True Grit as a jumping off point for a superhero story, I've heard worse ideas, MJ. You know I love my westerns. That's that's what I, th I think this has you a little blinded because of that. Because I think that using the entirety of a very well-known western for like the springboard of your story is as much of a crutch as using lyrics to narrate a, a page or two. I will agree with you there. I will agree with you there. That said, I feel like it's executed very clearly. Uh, yes, as as much as I am bitching about it, I I enjoyed this issue despite the true gritness that I could not get past. <laughs> I like the idea of Supergirl. Oh, by the way, there are spoilers in this conversation. We should say spoilers ahead. I mean, I think it's already a spoiler to have said that it's a true grit riff because you'll you won't not see but it. But everyone's saying that on Twitter, you know, it's not a secret. But that said. I like what Tom King did with Supergirl, that she would fly to an alien planet with a red sun where no one knows who she is, more importantly doesn't know who her cousin is, where she can get drunk on her 21st birthday in peace. I think that is cool. It is, it is very cute. It is very cute. King doesn't write her as being as angry as a lot of other writers do, because as we've talked about before, DC, their default for Supergirl is make her sexy. Uh, wait, no, let's make her angry. Yeah. Oh, uh, make her sexy and angry. Yeah, exactly. And this, she isn't angry, just hung over. Well, she gets <laughs> angry. She gets angry at the end, but it's I guess it's more earned. It's a justifiable reason to get angry. Yeah. Some very shocking things happen at the end of this issue. It's a Tom King book. You can expect that to happen. But as a rooster Cogburn fill-in, I think Kara Zorel is an interesting choice. Yeah. It's challenging. It's an idea that shouldn't work. And it might not. This is the first issue of an eight-issue miniseries, so there's still a chance for this to fall on itself. But as far as the first issue goes, I like Supergirl in this issue. It makes sense that she did what she did, and it makes sense how she meets Ruthie. Mm -hmm. And Ruthie's plight, while, yes, is very true gritty, and she wants revenge against the man that killed her father, that's a good enough reason to start a book as any. Totally explains why Ruthie and Supergirl would pair up for an interstellar journey together. It totally does. It works. Some things that I want to mention. There's a couple points where... Throughout most of the book, the dialogue, it's like narrated by Ruthie and her vocabulary. It's very eloquent. It's very high language being used by most of the characters in the book. But every once in a while, there'll be like this cowboy phrased sentence. Like her mom says something like, oh, they're ornery. I don't got time for that. 
or something. That's fine. That didn't bug me so much. And then Ruthie says, like, I'm tuckered out. Like, it's abrupt when it switches over to cowboy talk real quick. It reminds me of a book that just came out a couple weeks ago, Everfrost from Black Mask. It was written by Ryan Lindsay. And that does similar things with the dialogue, where it's very futuristic, so therefore it sounds alien, it sounds strange, it sounds very eloquent, as you said. But then it'll jump to, like, the odd profanity here or there. And it's like, where does that come from? I'm not saying that high-minded academic types don't curse, but the cadence changes. And I don't feel like the cadence shifting from old Western to high-minded alien shit was so jarring that it threw me off the book. It jarred me, though. So It was anachronistic, and I appreciated it. But it's funny, talking about bad words, there's a lot of censored four-letter words in this book. Supergirl's got a potty mouth. Well, it's partially because she's either drunk or hungover, which one can relate. Yeah, we've all been there. But we haven't talked about the art. Yeah. That is one thing that I have absolutely no quibbles with. This book is so beautifully drawn yeah. and colored so well lettered the part when supergirl is drunk clayton cowles he makes the word balloons a little wobbly, yeah. and then the line from the word balloon leading to the mouth is a little wobbly as well but it's not a lot it's not like oh this is definitely a drunk character it's just enough for you to notice hmm this word balloon looks different ah she's a sheet or two past the wind yes yes and i appreciated that that was a nice little flourish on clayton cowles part mm-hmm. but bill Casevoli and matt lopez who are a team that should never be apart. They work so well together. This is a planet that has a red sun, so every exterior panel has a certain hue to it, and it's consistent throughout. It even gradiates. As we get closer to dusk or as we're coming away from dawn, it's subtle, but it's there. And Matt Lopez is the colorist that would think about stuff like that. It's awesome. It's just this beautiful warmth. And Bilquis Evely's line work just makes you want to cry. It's so beautiful. It's so delicate, but at the same time, when violence occurs, and oh, brother, does it occur, it moves with this manga-esque ferocity <laughs> that shocked me a little bit. Because when you read Bilquis Evely, you're thinking like, oh, the, the dreaming. dreaming. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're thinking... You're Wonder think- Woman. Wonder Woman. You're thinking stuff like that. I was thinking of Shaft, the first book that drew my attention towards Bilquis Evely in the first place. It was a licensed book published by Dynamite, written by David Walker, Bilkus Evely illustrated it, and it is, yes, that Shaft. And they made it one of the best detective comics I've ever read. You know what I mean mm-hmm. when I say detective comics. Mm-hmm. Yes. I thought of that and the violence in that book and how she's gone from Ordway-esque to her own thing. Bilkus Evely has evolved into one of the most indelible artists in the industry today. Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow is the perfect project for her. We're going to see great things from this book, and that gets me excited. So yes, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow is a true grit throwback. It lifts probably more than it should from that premise, but it doesn't bother me. The art alone is the reason why everyone should check this book out. But the story is solid too. Even though the ending is far more shocking than it probably needed to be. There is an occurrence that is a spoiler that I'm not going to mention that just had me angry because this is just an emotionally manipulative thing to do it was, in a piece of media. It was, but the thing that got hurt will get better. All right, spoilers here. So, and this is not what I was just talking about. Supergirl gets shot with arrows at the very end of this comic. Yeah. And once an arrow's in your chest, the arrow's in your chest. I don't care if you're Superman or, you know, me. Yeah. You're going to die. Yeah. Just because she's under a red sun, like, if the arrows can penetrate her, they're hurting her. And they just kind of make it seem like, oh, she's shot with arrows. She's bleeding. She does collapse at the very end, but also it doesn't seem to affect her. And she's still beating up these huge dudes. So. Is she actually, is she vulnerable because of the red sun and getting shot with arrows? Or does she still have her strength? And this goes into the question of Kryptonian physiology. Like, where is the Kryptonian heart? Somebody explained it once, and I can't remember what it is, but 
Tom King possibly looked that up and figured it out to maybe. work around it. We'll figure that out in issue number two, or maybe he'll gloss over it entirely. Maybe. Yeah. She's fighting these two dudes, also has arrows in her. So what's actually hurting her? Is she still strong? And it's not like it's in her shoulder or even in her abdomen, but it's in her chest. Three of them in her yeah, chest. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like Boromir at the end of Fellowship, who was assuredly going to die by the end of that fight, getting up after getting shot time and again with all these gigantic arrows. It's not like that, where he's getting shot in areas where he could conceivably still swing a sword even that would be ridiculous right in the chest it's a lot to accept but i still accepted it because it's a comic book it's a superhero comic book these things are not supposed to be taken so literally <sighs> but mj here we are at the end of the conversation we got to wrap this up that's true on a scale to one to ten how do you rate supergirl woman of tomorrow issue number one despite my many quibbles i really did enjoy the comic i can't deny it you cannot deny I it i can't i'm gonna say it's an eight and a half for I'm me. I'm with you. That's exactly my score. Yeah. An 8.5 out of me for that. It's fantastic. It's really good stuff. Yeah. And I'm really excited to read more. Like, I'm anxious. I want to get my hands on the future issues. But I have to wait like everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we both do. That's right. Now, with that out of the way, MJ, let's talk about the important things in comics. Specifically, does Batman go downtown? <laughs> let's answer that question really quick on the way out. Does he or does he not? Well, yes. Emphatically, yes. Yes. Of course he does. Yeah, despite what the higher-ups say, because they're squeamish, 100% he does. You know who else does? Nightwing. Well, obviously. Nightwing's the type of character that would just stay down there. <laughs> take his time. Like, to the point where the girl would almost get bored and or annoyed. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason why Tim Seeley named his first Nightwing arc better than Batman. You know what? Screw it. Let's just get out of here. <laughs> Let's just wrap this up. <laughs> That's it. That's all the time we have for this week's Casual Wednesdays. Need more of the sweepy little podcast in your life? Check out our episode archive via any good podcatcher or check us out over at doomrocket.com. Rate, follow, subscribe, whatever you want to do, or tell us how we're doing with a review on Apple Podcasts. Pretty please. <laughs> New episodes every single week. And while you're at it, look us up on Twitter at Casual Podcast. I'm at Jared Jones underscore MJ. Where can they find you? At Molly Jane underscore K. So until the day DC answers the question, does Batgirl reciprocate? I remain Jared. That's MJ over there. And from all of us here at DoomRocket.com, have a great new comic book day. These are important questions that need to be answered. I mean, I've seen fan art that indicates yes, exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs>